you have a Bible or some other way of accessing Scripture, turn to Psalm 4 today. Psalm 4. Maybe you have it memorized and you don't need to turn anywhere. Uh, but we are we just finished 1 Samuel last week and 31 chapters. A lot about Saul, a lot about Samuel, a lot about David. Uh, and so now we're going to turn to some of the Psalms of David and some of the other Psalms uh, over the summer. And we in 1 Samuel, we heard and read about what happened to David. But now in the Psalms, we get to, to read about what was going on in his heart and in his mind when some of these things were happening. And it's very, very helpful. You know the Psalms, they're a huge blessing to every <clears throat> Christian. So Psalm 4 begins, To the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me when I was in distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood, Silah? But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. Silah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thus ends the reading of the inspired, the inerrant word of the living God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. May it be illumined now by the same Spirit. Lord, we depend upon you to teach us. Lord, speak to us and do that heart work that the Word of God does. Lord, it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it divides between joints and marrow, between soul and spirit. So, Lord, let it pierce our hearts today and do its work. In Jesus' name, amen. So Psalm 4, like many of the Psalms, was written by King David and written when he was in distress. He was in trouble. Now, we can't be absolutely certain about the occasion, <clears throat> particular occasion that brought forth uh, the words of Psalm 4, but it is likely connected to Psalm 3. And if you flip back, there's a title given to Psalm 3, and it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. And the reason we think they're connected because... Psalm 3 is, is kind of a morning psalm. He wakes up and it's a psalm you know, penned in for the morning. And then Psalm 4 is its counterpart, a psalm of the evening as he goes back to bed. So if it's about Absalom, at least in his mind, if he's thinking of Absalom, remember, uh, if you've read 2 Samuel, because it wasn't in 1 Samuel, that Absalom sought to unlawfully 
take the throne from his father. David was ruling as king. And Absalom, as he was grown, he decides to, uh, you know, to take the throne before it was his time. And even we don't even know that God was going to call him, of course, or he didn't know that. And, and so uh, David has to flee the palace. He has to flee his own home. You know, David, in other words, was dealing with a rebellious son. Some of you can relate to David. Some have lost much sleep uh, over a wayward child. But, you know, David loved Absalom. And when he died, he said, oh, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. He grieved for him. Uh, but, but he loved him. So all the more did his rebellion break his heart. And yet David obtained peace from God. Even while he was carrying this heaven, uh, heavy burden. So it may not be a rebellious child that you're facing today. But whatever is upsetting you, whatever is bothering you, Psalm 4 can help you to focus uh, your thoughts and your heart and to lie down at night in peace. As we study the psalm together, three points today. And the first one is we see that David prays and he teaches us about prayer. Verse 1, David says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. So let me ask you a question. Why do you pray? Why do you pray? Well, there are probably a number of things you could say. But one thing you ought to say is, I'm praying to get an answer. David said, hear me, O God. It comes from a Hebrew word. Another translation says, answer me, O God. Hebrew word is means to be answered, to receive an answer. You know, as, as pastor, um, people come to me during the week and uh, after the service and at any time, and they ask me questions. That's fine. Uh, it comes with the territory. Uh, but what if I never responded to your questions? What if I just ignored you and uh, didn't say a word? I think you would probably stop bothering to ask me any more questions. You know, he's ignoring me. He's not even bothering to answer my questions. Well, you know, I think a lot of people pray and yet they don't seem to care whether God answers them or not. Uh, they just go through the motions of prayer. And uh, it's kind of like a ritual for them. They're not really expecting a response from God. But um, David did not feel that way. He did not think that way. He cries out with strong desire. A plea. Hear me when I call. Answer me, O Lord. Hear my prayer. He desperately needed an answer. He wasn't just praying just to be praying. And so he addresses God by a particular name that is not used in the exact way anywhere else in Scripture. He, he, he addresses God as, O God of my righteousness. So David did not expect God to respond based on his own righteousness. He expected an answer because of God's righteousness. His confidence was in God. And really, that is our confidence today. It's in God, in Christ, who is our righteousness. And so David understood, uh, perhaps not as clearly as we do today, but he understood that it was only 
by the finished work of Jesus Christ that we can be accepted and that our prayers can be accepted. It's only the God of our righteousness who supplies our righteous standing through Christ uh, by which our prayers can be answered. At the end of verse 1, then David prays, have mercy on me. Uh, and so when we come to God in prayer, what are we, what are we doing? We're thinking uh, and recognizing that we don't deserve anything from him. That anything we might obtain from him, any answer that we might receive from him, is not because we deserve it but on the basis of his mercy. So God shows mercy to us, not because we deserve mercy, but because he delights in mercy. The Bible says he delights to be merciful. We are all great sinners. So whenever we pray, we need to begin. It's always good to begin with that focus. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember the two in the temple that went up to pray, the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee, his prayers were not heard. But the publican, the tax collector's prayers were heard because he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Simple prayer. But the attitude is one that we need to have every time we pray. And so, um, in verse 1, David also remembers past mercies as he prays for new ones. You he says, you have relieved me in my distress. It's past tense. Uh, and, and so he mentions the times in which God had previously helped him in the past so that he was strengthened in his faith for the present. So when we pray, we ought to have a good memory, a good memory. Moses made a big deal uh, telling the children of Israel uh, to remember when God delivered them out of Egypt. And one of the ways in which they would be able to do that is through the celebration of the Passover and eating the Passover meal. But in Exodus 13.3, Moses said, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. For by strength of hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Remember what the Lord has done for you. And so you and I, we are called to remember what the Lord has done for us. He's done much more than deliver us out of a foreign land. He's delivered us out of our sins. And we, have, we also have a meal that helps us to remember. We do this. We take the Lord's Supper and do this in remembrance of me, said Jesus. And so remembering what Christ has done for us in, in saving us and remembering other things that God has done for us will help us to be confident in prayer. So he begins the psalm with prayer. Uh, prayer to the God of his righteousness. Prayer for mercy. Prayer that remembers the things God has done. And then secondly in our passage, second point today is, is we see that David preaches, he speaks to others. David first speaks to God in prayer about his troubles. Then he speaks to those who were causing some of the trouble uh, that he was experiencing. So he first spoke to God about men, and then he spoke to men about God. Verse 2, he says, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? So as soon as David, you see, rises from prayer 
Then he gains this courage to face his enemies and to challenge them with the truth. Again, we don't know exactly who these people were. It may have been Absalom and, and, and the group that he had gathered to follow him. Uh, but it was likely fellow Israelites, people uh, from Israel. And so they had insulted his glory. That is his personal honor. That's another way to say it. Uh, they, they told lies about him. They, they misrepresented his character. Uh, sounds like a lot of that's still going on today with politicians, doesn't it? But David, besides his personal honor and integrity, uh, he had the honor and glory of being God's anointed king. And so uh, David himself, as you recall from 1 Samuel, was careful not to lay a hand on Saul because he was God's anointed he respected that, uh, uh, the glory that was laid upon Saul. And yet these worthless men had come against David, as, even though he was God's anointed, uh, with false and lying attacks. They were seeking his life, and he calls upon them to stop what they are doing. And in verse 3, he gives a reason why they ought to stop their attack uh, attacks upon him. He says, Know the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. And so these men were seeking to bring David's glory to shame, but they needed to know that the Lord had chosen him. The Lord had set him apart. And, uh, and so the Lord would answer his prayers. The Lord would be his defender. And, and in other words, David's enemies needed to know they were not merely fighting with a man, but with God himself. They would be fighting a losing battle. And of course, everything that is true about David was true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is, was, is the anointed one of God whom David prefigured, whom David pictured. And so we can fill in uh, our Lord at every, every verse, really, of this psalm. And verse 3 is not only true of David, it's not only true of Jesus Christ, but also of all believers today. All believers in Christ. Those who are in Christ. We have been chosen by God for God. God has set us apart for himself, even before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election, you see, is a great encouragement for every believer, David was encouraged because he knew that God had chosen him to be king. David did not choose himself. God chose him. You and I do not choose God as much as God chooses us. And so the doctrine of election means, first of all, uh, that our salvation is guaranteed. And not only is your eternal salvation guaranteed, uh, but every step you take until you reach heaven, is also ordered by the Lord. You know, the devil may accuse us, the world may condemn us, but God, who has chosen us, will protect us. He will keep us until the end. He's said that, you know, uh, in many, many places in the Bible, that he who began a good work in you will continue it 
until the day of Christ Jesus. And then Luke 18, 7, the words of Jesus, Jesus said, And shall God not avenge his own elect? Yes, there are a group of people known as the elect. Jesus uses that term. God will avenge his elect who cry out, in other words, pray to him day and night. Yes, God will avenge his elect. Don't mess with God's elect because they're his. They're special to him. And they cry out to him day and night in prayer and he hears their prayers. So when you're on your knees and you're praying, first of all, remember who God is. He is the sovereign Lord. He's Lord of all things. But also remember who you are. Remember, maybe even better to say, remember whose you are. You belong to Him. He chose you. He set you apart. He called you. He made you His own son or daughter. And those who touch you, touch the apple of God's eye. You are His special treasure chosen from all eternity. You know, we're often afraid of what evil people might do to us. But you know who ought to be afraid? Those people who harm Christians, who seek to do us good, uh, evil. Uh, they ought to be the ones who are afraid to lay their hands upon the very least of God's chosen. So the Lord is our defender. He is the Almighty God. Let us not be afraid. Hebrews 13, 6, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So David continues his sermon in verse 4. He says, be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart on your bed and be still. So he's pleading with his enemies to consider their ways. You're angry. Don't sin. Think about things. Meditate in your heart. Be still for a minute. All this clamoring is not going to get you anywhere, he seems to be saying. And so, again, a reminder is that these were fellow Israelites who professed to know and worship the same God that David did. And David's saying, you need to engage in some self-examination. You need to look at yourself. They need to do, as the Lord says in Psalm 46:10, be still and know that he is God. They need to calm down their rage and be quiet before the Lord so that he might show them the error of their ways. You and I need to do the same. We need to quiet our hearts before the Lord. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength, the Bible says. The Apostle Paul repeats the first half of verse 4 in Ephesians 4.26. That's why it sounds familiar to us. Be angry and do not sin. And then Paul adds, and do not let the sun go down on your wrath. And this admonition is, is something we all need as believers. Because Ephesians was certainly written to believers. We need to be on guard against allowing anger to build in our hearts. Letting ourselves stew over things until we... Uh, are going to lash out at someone or something. Often we do lash out at others when really we need to be angry at our own sin and faults. Again, self-examination will help us to think clearly about these things. So don't go to bed angry. Might pay not to watch the news right before you go to bed. 
Um, might pay to meditate on the Word of God as you go to bed. Is your heart at rest this morning? Can you sleep at night? Do you have a clear conscience that would enable you to do that? Um, last week we sang the hymn, Take Time to Be Holy. In the last stanza says, Take time to be holy. Be calm in thy soul. Each thought and each motive beneath his control. End of the day, calm your soul before the Lord. Let everything be under his control. David says in verse 5, he says, Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. I think David is doing two things here. He's rebuking them for their hypocrisy. They're out to get him. They're doing wrong. But he's also seeking their conversion, their repentance. He's urging them to trust in the Lord. Now, these men were likely religious men. Uh, they would go to the temple and they made their offerings. He's assuming that when he says offer righteous offerings. You're offering, you're making offerings, but you need to make sure they're righteous offerings. You see, such things are easy to do without true and sincere faith from the heart. That's why I mentioned what I did about the prayer of confession. We can pray that prayer all day long, but if we don't mean it sincerely from the heart, if we don't have faith when we pray it, then it doesn't do any good. It's not a righteous prayer. God is only pleased with righteous sacrifices. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a number of ways to think about that. That, first of all, He is pleased when we bring uh, worship that that He has commanded. Uh, that, that worship that is pleasing to Him. But that also, when we bring it with a sincere and trusting heart. In other words, worship in spirit and in truth, as, as Jesus put it. And the Bible says, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You take the Lord's Supper without faith, it's not going to please God. You sing the hymn without faith, it's not going to please God. Uh, you come to church without a surrendered heart to the Lord and faith in Him, you might as well stay home. So our faith needs to also be in the Lamb of God who has been sacrificed for us. We must put our trust in Jesus Christ. When we come to worship, when we get down on our knees, when we pray to God, we must always think, Lord, not only do I, I pray for mercy, but where does that mercy come from? And It comes through and from Jesus Christ Himself, the only mediator between God and man. You need a go-between. You can't just pray to God yourself without Jesus being the mediator. So are you trusting in his perfect sacrifice, his perfect righteousness? Is he the God of your righteousness as you pray? And to offer righteous sacrifices, you see, is to put your trust in the righteous sacrifice. This perfect offering of Jesus and then worship him in spirit and in truth. And then offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God. The last point in the passage is this. Then David finally uh, rejoices that God gives gladness and peace to our hearts. Thus far in Psalm 4, David has urged us by his own example 
and instruction to pray. And then he's urged us to consider our ways, to examine our hearts, to turn from our sin and put our trust in the Lord, offering righteous sacrifices unto God. David is doing that, and that's what we need to do. But what if we do what David says? Will, will there be, what will result from these things? Is there anything we can expect? Yes, first of all, we can expect answers to prayer. Um, but look at verse 6. David says, and, uh, and he's putting you know, words in the mouths of others. He says, there are many who say, who will show us any good? Who will show us any good? This is what they were saying. Is there really anything good in the world? Is there any good to be found? Is there any true happiness in the world? It's a question, really, that they don't expect an answer to. They, they're, they're skeptical. They don't really believe in the goodness of God. Now, of course, if we're looking to the world, we're not going to find anything good in the world in and of itself other than what God has created and what God has done. Is there any good in the world? They didn't have an answer, but David did. David said, Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. That's where goodness comes from, from his blessing, his countenance. You want to see something good? Well, they were saying, show us. We want to see it. But David really is walking by faith, not by sight. He's saying, what you need is the countenance, the blessing of God. You may or may not see it, but you'll know it. You'll know it. Lift up the light of your countenance on us. That's where blessing is found. That's where uh, goodness is found. The smile and favor of God. David is thinking of the ironic blessing in number six that sometimes I say at the end of the service, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and give you peace. Those who seek good in the world and from the world will not find it. Those who seek happiness in what they see only will be disappointed. But when God shines His face on you and lifts up His countenance upon you and blesses you with His presence, it's going to be more than you can handle. You're going to have a flood of joy, a flood of peace and goodness, no matter what's going on around you in the world. David could say in verse 7, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. You see, the world is happy as long as there's pleasure and profit. But that joy of theirs is temporary. And it's empty in the end. God alone can put gladness in your heart. And when He does, it will be true and lasting joy. It will be real joy. You know, the unbeliever, and, and I remember, and maybe you do too, is really quite empty on the inside in spite of a, a, a happy facade. There's emptiness within. Now, Jeff Thomas has been the pastor of Alfred Place Baptist Church in Wales for over 50 years, and he relates uh, a, a testimony of a young school teacher, a young woman named Julie Savage. And uh, he said he read this testimony in a, in a Christian magazine uh, in Great Britain, uh, and which is where Julie lived. And <clears throat> And this was just a few years back, but she had been a hardened atheist as a young woman. 
And she wrote her testimony out for the magazine. And she said Christianity was simply an oppressive system of thought. And the sooner the world was free from its taint, the better. I lived out my atheist beliefs. I used my teaching position, she said, to undermine Christianity. She, sent host- she said, I sent hostile emails to Christian groups, and this led me to participate in online Christian forums, and I enjoyed the challenge, often boasting to my students about my victories, quote. Well, someone she had argued with online, uh, probably more than one, prayed for her, prayed for God to bless their words as they replied to Julie and wrote to her about the glory of God. So the months went by, and a great change began to happen. Uh, Increasing intellectual curiosity replaced her fierce antagonism, and Julie began to question, Are you there, God? Watch out. (laughs) Watch out. Wow, wouldn't that be, you know, if we could just challenge someone this week to say, you know, you don't believe in God, but... Why don't you try just just throwing up a prayer anyway and just ask God if he's there. See what happens. She she began to question and say, are you there, God? She decided to visit a church. And for three Sundays, she sat in the parking lot and didn't get out of her car. Then she made it. She sat through a service. And she went back the next Sunday and the next. And she kept attending for months Unable to walk away. But all the time, she was still looking for ammunition to give that final blow to this Christian God. I think you know what's going to happen here. She said, I'll ignore him and it'll simply all go away. But on the 30th of October, 2002, she went to bed early. But at 1 o'clock, she found herself wide awake. And she, this is what she remembers of that evening. And I quote, she said, I went downstairs and, and just sat there. A sense of nothingness just grew and grew beyond a mere negative emotion, beyond depression. Then I became aware of the presence of Christ. I did not see or hear anything, but I knew his reality and presence. And I knew he was saying, that's enough now. He was right. It was enough. During the moments that followed, I did not decide to, to adopt some religious principles or embrace some therapeutic system. I didn't even become all religious. Rather, I entered into a relationship with my God, one who had hung on a cross for me so that I might be reconciled to him and know him. She said, on reflection, I believe that the awful nothingness I experienced that night was a glimpse into what it means to be separated from God. That all happened, she said, over six years ago, and soon afterward, I was baptized. Today, I remain assured of the reality of Christ, and I have discovered in the past years that he is no delusion, perhaps referring to Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, that was written. This is the power of God I once declared dead. God is very much alive. God is alive. He's the living God. And she experienced what David uh, said about the light of God's countenance shining upon her. Without God's smile and favor, you see, there's nothing but darkness and despair and death and deadness. And she knew, she knew 
by the presence of Jesus Christ and the power of his word, that God's face was now shining on her. And she discovered also what David said in verse 8, the last verse of the, of the text. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. How, how are you sleeping these days? Anybody have trouble sleeping? I do. <laughs> and there are different reasons we know. You know, there are physical reasons. Um, when you get older, uh, I don't know, there's something something in the body that just says, you don't need to sleep right now. Wake up. Uh, but, but sometimes it is because there's something wrong uh, in our relationship with the Lord. There's, we, we don't have a clear conscience, perhaps, but... David says, God will give you peace and sleep. Whatever we're worried about, he says, you, Lord, alone make me dwell in safety. Do you have that confidence in God this morning? Well, you may or may not have tr- trouble actually sleeping all night, all through the night. But uh, do you sleep? And when you do, do you do so knowing that God will make you dwell in safety. We, we live in a world that is less safe than ever. Every day we read about shootings and murders, horrible things. But God makes us dwell in safety. So Jesus suffered and died. Why? That you might have peace with God and know the peace of God. When Christ was dying on the cross, the Father turned his face away. He did not lift up the light of his countenance upon his son as he hung on the cross, suffering for the sins of the world. So Jesus experienced that separation from God that that Julie Savage, the teacher, experienced just for a brief moment. He experienced the eternal weight of being forsaken by God while he was on the cross. The Father turned His face away from the Son that He might turn His face towards you and me. And so have you received Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you have His peace? Then you can sleep in peace. Why can you sleep in peace? Because the Lord never sleeps as He watches over those that are His. And then you can become like David, not only a prayer warrior, but a peacemaker, telling others how they can have peace with God. And they may be angry. They may be arguing with you. I don't believe in this God of yours. And and have all their arguments. But you can say, but you know, Jesus came to die that you can have peace with God and be forgiven of your sin. Don't you want to turn and know this Jesus? As I know him. Let me tell you about him. Well, let's bow together in a word of prayer.